Hello, Yeroon. Hello, Dylan. I have to admit, I'm a little bit intimidated by our topic today. Me too, a little bit. Uh, I feel like people will have expectations, and I'm not sure I'll be up uh, to par, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, uh, forms are a formidable topic, if you will. They are... Ooh. <laughs> nice. Uh, it, it really is a complex problem <laughs> space, I think. And it is ambitious to... I mean, working in a type-safe world, it does put an extra burden on us to design all the pieces to fit together neatly, especially when what we're doing is essentially data intake and data processing and throw type safety into the mix. And that's a lot of responsibility to make a really nice API for sort of transforming things in a, in a way that we can sort of parse, don't validate. And at the same time, all these concerns are working together. The logic for presenting the view, mm -hmm. but that can be dependent on what you've parsed and um, how you render individual fields and how you present them so it's going to parse into the appropriate thing and how you display errors for each of those fields how you like how and when you display errors for those individual fields so that's sort of what i hoped we would get into today i don't i don't have a particular conclusion about which form people should use which form api rather i i sort of um hope we can explore some of these different design considerations and yeah. really what i'm hoping to do is talk through some of my ideas for how the state of form apis could be improved that's really what i want to get into yeah let's do that i also don't have any specific package that i want to recommend because the one that i'm using at humio is custom made and okay yeah slightly different from yeah a bit different from the ones that i see on the elm packages registry so mm, i'll be curious to hear about that we'll see yeah cool so dylan what is a yes. form oh it is a form uh well i mean i think again it is sort of these two different concerns how do you present something to the user that they can input data into and how do you take that data and turn it into structured data that might have errors also known as Parsing, sometimes we call that. Decoding, validating, parsing. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, ideally, I think that parse don't validate is really key in my mind to an ideal form API because, sure, you can sort of treat everything as, as strings or low-level data and leave it at that and just tack on errors. And that's, you know, that simplifies a lot of things. But... It doesn't, it doesn't feel right. Like it feels like we should be able to parse things into nicely structured data. At the core, I, I think it's that. And, and that data, then the purpose of it is usually to send it to a server. Not, not always. Sometimes yeah. we use sort of front-end only forms where we're not really persisting it to a back-end or interacting with some external service. But usually that's what it's for. Yeah. So, so a form is a series of inputs um, that you can turn into either a list of errors because the form is not complete or has problems or to something let's say final that you can submit to a service a server a another function something like that 
just a, a series of inputs that you want to handle in a nice way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that you would like to make uh, some nice interactions with, especially with regards to uh, validation errors and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. You you want to give really nice user feedback and you want that feedback to be meaningful, precise, and in sync with what your actual backend expects. So that's like a little bit out of scope for this discussion, but maybe a uh, bit of foreshadowing for a future episode about how how might you keep your form parsing logic in sync between your front end and back end? Well, wouldn't it be handy if we could run the same code on both sides and have that be Elm code that uh, so we know that they're in sync? And yes, of course, I'm talking about the new Elm Pages release, which um, we'll definitely be talking about at some point. Forthcoming Elm, uh, Elm Pages release. Yes, yes. It's not released yet, so it's not it new. Is. That's right. That's right. You, you have more work to, to do, Dylan, to to lease it. So. Oh yes. Don't give them false hope. Like uh, it's available today. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Yeah. No, it's, it's going to be awesome. Alpha. Yeah, yeah. I've I've been thinking about forms a lot because it's pretty core to to the goals I have for Elm Pages V3, um, especially you know being able to um, take input, you know, user input and turn it into trusted validated data and you want that that feedback you want to share that feedback about what makes it invalid to the user and you want to be able to use that same logic to get it into a trusted form you know trusted structured data that you can use to do things with you know with those assumptions that you made with your parsing logic so if you if you say something is a valid username then you need to be able to trust that before we we dive into that, I want to know whether you think what a form API is for. Because when I was working with uh, React back in the day, um, it's not like I did it for a long time. But when people said, "Hey, I'm looking for um, for a form package," it felt more like people were looking for how to create form UIs. Mm-hmm. Like I want to say. Here is an input, and it expects a number. Uh, and based on this condition, it shows up or it doesn't show up, uh, and it will look like this. And I feel like in the packages that I see in the Elm community, they don't have that UI component. They don't have a visual. They only have that logic about validating, uh, parsing, showing errors. But they don't have that particular point of outputting a, or rendering a UI. When you say rendering a UI, do you mean like rendering a, a field that's like a password input type, so it masks the characters versus a text area? Yeah, for instance, uh, exactly. And with a specific UI, like it looks good, and uh, you can you can just put it in your project and use it, and you will be happy. And it shows the. I see. Okay, right. Well, yeah. So I I think uh, first of all, starting with what would vanilla form handling look like in Elm is a very good place to start. I like that a lot. For the problem of like presenting uh, the form versus kind of parsing the input, um, that's a that's a great distinction. There definitely are helpers in some of the common packages in the Elm ecosystem that help with this. Uh, there are a few considerations here. There's, you know, so so 
the different approaches you could take, you could completely leave it up to the user and say, all I do is parse data. I don't have any concern about uh, how you present it. That's up to the user. Yeah. So there are different approaches you could take this. You could have, you could leave it completely up to the user to deal with presenting the forms. And all you do is you parse the data from those forms. You could sort of provide some helpers for presenting those forms. That's kind of the approach that um, one of the one of the more popular packages out there, um, Itake Emilian, I think is his name. I don't know how to pronounce that properly, but uh, this package Elm form is like a sort of decoder style API for for parsing form input, and it provides a few helpers for for displaying fields like nice looking fields you mean it doesn't have any opinions on how they look it, it, and i kind of think that that makes sense because at the core you have essentially three different elements maybe maybe four you have you have inputs that's kind of the the broadest one because a radio button is a type of input text input is an input password input is an input a data input is an input you have buttons. Buttons can be used to submit forms. Actually, you can create that using an input element. So that's sort of a just a special case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, depending on how you're building your forms, if you're if you're not necessarily concerned about building it as a semantic HTML form, where it's actually like a valid form with a button that would actually do something without JavaScript, then you could say like, you know, that's not even a concern of the package. You, he, here's a message you can attach to it to submit or a function you could use to validate or whatever and wire that up to whatever element you want. I don't care. I don't have an opinion on how you render that. And then you've got a select element, which can have drop downs, and you've got a text area, right? So like there aren't that many. And a text area is really kind of like an input text. It's just like really, it seems like it should be a different input type. There's probably some historical reason for why it's not. You mean it should be the same, or it should be a different one? Because there are different ones. I I mean it should be like why not have it be an input element with type equals text area or something like that. Like it's just a at the end of the day, it's functionally equivalent to input type equals text, but it's presented differently. But that's the same for input type equals tell for telephone number or input type equals email. It's like functionally the same as input type equals text. You know, email is maybe going to run a client side validation automatically unless you have a no validate attribute, which usually is actually what you want to do because you want to present your own error messages however you want to present them and have more fine-grained control over what error messages to present and how and when to present them. So at the end of the day, my my point is that the concern about how to present it nicely, I personally think is a separate concern from sort of presenting the raw input fields and the uh, and parsing that data. Those two things I think should be a single concern of how do you uh, present the low level fields and how do you parse the data. And if those two things know about each other, there are certain nice things you could do because a date input has certain implications for what type it will parse into. Presenting it 
in terms of nice styles and that sort of thing. My thought on that is that the that should be a separate concern, not that you couldn't have nice abstractions to help with that, but I think that I think you can handle that pretty well by just saying, hey, I know how to render these fields that you have, and hopefully the form API you have knows, you know, whether it's a date field or a text field or a password field, and it knows how to put the right attributes for that. But then it should allow you to put other HTML attributes to style it. That's how I think of it. Yeah, same here. I feel like it could be useful to have uh, the form API provide those helpers but at some point it's gonna conflict with with what uh, the your ui designer will want or what you will want the application to look like so it can help you get started maybe to get started with having a nice looking thing but in the end you will want to replace it at some point or have it be quite customizable so yeah i think i mentioned this before but I feel like that's also the same reason why we don't have a lot of UI packages with like nice inputs, with nice buttons, with uh, all those niceties, uh, except the ones that are like, this is a standard like uh, material UI from Google. There's a package for that. And that makes sense because if your company says, or your team says, we're going to build it with this material UI style, then this makes a lot of sense. It's going to work for you in the long run or in some version of the long run right right but otherwise like there it's unlikely that's gonna work gonna work out right so so i do feel like they, sh- they should be separate right right because you can get backed into a corner where you have a nice getting started experience things look really good and you're like wow this is simple there are so few decisions i need to make it looks nice it gives me what i need and then you get stuck and that's no, no, no you, you don't get stuck. You, you start saying, well, we can't do this uh, right. <laughs> because uh, this library doesn't allow us to. Or you start doing hacks or you start forking it or you start using a separate library for those specific inputs. And yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I, so I feel pretty strongly personally that the way that the view is presented should be extremely unopinionated and flexible except for the basic low-level fields which is just that should be opinionated that should be like hey if you're building like if you say here's a password input field that our api helps you do that if you say here's a, a date field our api helps you do that and it helps you parse that because it knows things about the the expected format that will that will come from from the date pickers that are going to be presented to users in their in their browser. So I feel like we agree that presenting a nice UI is not part of what a form API should do. So what then what is remaining is are potentially three things in my opinion. Two of those I totally agree with. The third one I'm still not sure. One of them is handling errors like validation errors and uh, making sure they look good and that they appear when they should based on the user's interaction. We can go more about that later. The second one is doing the actual validation, saying this field the sh- should take a phone number and a phone number looks like this, for instance. And that could potentially be a whole separate API in practice and a whole separate package 
And the third one is what to show when. So like, for instance, having conditional fields, uh, conditional inputs, presenting them how, presenting them where, um, and w with some configuration. And I feel like th that last point is what a lot of uh, form APIs, um, at, at least what, what I've seen in React land, they, they get very uh, hairy. They, they try to customize everything using like uh, one record to be able to express anything and everything. And you, you were basically inventing a new DSL. And at some point you're gonna get stuck because it's not gonna be able to do what you want at all or in a nice way. Is that what you, what you feel as well or? Yeah, I'm definitely on the same page with you here. So, so yeah, and you, you brought up a, a lot of good insights here, I think. So, so you said looking at fields and potentially having that be its own API. So one of the things that I encountered, so a little bit of background, I tried to sort of create a, a form API for the, for the Elm Pages V3 uh, project from first principles. And I, I built an API and, you know, I wasn't sort of looking at docs for other form APIs. I was just sort of like, what do I need here? And, um, you know, to a certain extent, I'm coupling it to certain framework elements that I can hook into, which a vanilla Elm form API is not going to do. But, um, but otherwise, I'm trying to solve a lot of similar problems from first principles. And I, it's actually a really good exercise because I, well, I, I built an API. I actually was really happy with certain pieces of it and certain pieces of it I was very unhappy with. And I, I basically threw it away and rummaged through the pieces that I liked to salvage them for a new from scratch API. And I came up with a totally different approach. And then what I've done now is I've sort of surveyed a lot of these popular form APIs. I've asked people what APIs they used. I've gotten some like code snippets of some homegrown solutions and looked at those, looked at what's in common, had some discussions with people. It's been really cool to compare and to see the roadblocks I ran into with my initial design, the things I tried with my new design, which I'm really pleased with, and, and to compare all those. So for... Uh, like one of the things I hit up against with my initial prototype that I was really unhappy about was I made it too rigid because I was trying to make it this combinator style pattern where, you know, like we've talked about in the past, like with Elm GraphQL, this unlocked some really cool things to say, hey, um, what, what having, do you mean with a combinatorial API? Basically, the uh, uh, not combinatorial, but like a combinator. Mean, oh. uh, just oh. <laughs> meaning things you can combine, but mm -hmm. uh, I think of it as like a recursively defined thing. So, um, so like a selection set. So you could either have a selection set and a field in Elm GraphQL, or you could say a field is just a special case of a selection set. It's a selection set with one selection. Yeah. So it's so kind of like um, for people who don't know GraphQL, mm -hmm. JSON that decode value. Right. can contain um, adjacent yes. decode value again. Exactly, exactly. So it's like a recursively defined data type and you can you can sort of deal with it in a very composable way because of that. You don't have to ha go into these special cases where you have to deal with it differently if it's mm -hmm. a field or a selection set or if it's a JSON object or a 
JSON string or whatever, right? So at first I thought, well, that seems like a really nice approach. I'll make it really composable. And I, I said, why, why should a field be different than a form? It's really the same thing. It parses into something and a field is a special case of a form. Right. Wow. Yeah. Which seems like a really good idea in theory. In practice, I didn't like it at all. And the reason is because it made it too rigid, both for presenting the view uh -huh. and for doing the decoding. So like, for example, if I wanted to do password confirmation, check that a password matches a password confirmation field. Or if I wanted to, you know, select a dropdown and based on that, show a different field. Yeah, so then, you need to do a lot of and thens or something. And thens. And then when you try to build that with um, something where you're actually like presenting the view, the types become so rigid that you can't really solve the problem the way you want to. And you get stuck. You get stuck in a corner. So I basically found that doesn't like, it's not a nice way to work with forms. So what I arrived at for when I threw that design away and built a new one from scratch, what I arrived at was embracing these two things being different. And I said, okay, I have fields and I have forms and they are different things. And I'm essentially going to declare these fields in an applicative style. So meaning, you know, you, you pipe things just like a JSON decode pipeline, you can say, required field, optional field, and it's applicatively building up this thing. So you usually start with like succeed user, and then you say required first string decoder, required last string decoder. You decode that into a user. So similar approach, you, you build up a form and you, you pipe in all of these fields. So you say with this field, with this field, with this field. Uh -huh. And if all of them pass their validation because you, I'm guessing you also uh, pass in the validation functions, then you have something that is validated, right? Right. So, so that's, that's the thing that turned out being really nice about this approach is now you have a field that has this logic for how to parse something. It's typed. So you can, you can map it. You can say with a, with a client validation that is actually going to transform the data or could could fail and not transform the data. And then it, it stops the chain of validations and transformations. So you can parse, don't validate, but you can build that up in a composable way, starting with like field.txt. And then you can even, that could give you a maybe, it could parse into a maybe string, and then you can pipe that into field.required. And then you can pipe that into field.with validation. And now you can transform that. Or instead of starting with field.txt, you could start with field.date. And now it's going to parse into a date type or field.time or these different core input types. We have field.checkbox. And it knows what that's going to parse into. So you have that parser. It knows how to present it. So now you, you have like your view function just receives all of those fields that you piped in. So now you're going to have your first name field, your last name field, your accept terms field, which is a checkbox field. And now you render that and you just, you just call, you know, 
render field function that takes that field and it knows how to render it with the appropriate attribute attributes but you can also pass in your own custom attributes but it's just a custom view function so you can render it into whatever type you want you can render it with whatever surrounding divs and context and html you want but what if the field is not valid yet right so if the field is not valid that's okay because you don't have a parsed like the checkbox it just has a raw value So the raw value, mm -hmm. it, at the end of the day, it's actually just a string, even if it's a checkbox. Oh, so, so I'm confused. So those functions, those presentation uh, view functions, they take the parsed value or the raw value? They get the raw value. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Then Which means matter. that mm -hmm. you can call that function whether or not each individual field succeeded. Right. And yeah, because okay. you need to, because you need to present a form before you have valid data. So, yeah. Yeah. So and it's important to, to to store the the raw data. I feel like because otherwise you get into some weird uh, interactions. So, so maybe mm -hmm. we mentioned this uh, in right. a previous episode. But for instance, one case that is, that is a bit problematic is when you want to have an input for a number. Yep. And right. you store it as a number in your model, and then the, the, one of the problems is like if you Uh, if the user empties the the field, then that is not a valid number anymore. So what you do is you have you show the default value, which is zero or something like that. So then there's a zero that is inserted into the field, meaning that you can't just say one or something. You have to say 10 or things like that. It, it, it gets weird. There are so many pitfalls like that where something seems yeah. like a really good idea And yeah, it does. That's you well. try it and it doesn't work out. And parsing things into valid data and storing storing that as your input seems like a good idea. Mm -hmm. and just, you run into dead ends like that, yeah, as you said. That sucks. But eh. yeah. But which is all the more reason that it really belongs in an API. Because doing it, um, I mean, certainly you can and and I've some people have shared some some nice looking hand-rolled APIs for dealing with forms. And you can you can get something pretty decent. You know, you can basically say, you know, put an on change or on input handler uh, with a, you know, you could sort of wrap something that that puts like a, that you give it a setter and a getter. At the end of the day, you're saying, how do I get this field's current value out of the model? And how do I set this field's value in, in the model? And then you take that raw model, which stores the low-level data, and you use that to parse into some sort of result or something, and you can present the errors. And it, you know, it works out okay. But what you what you lose is, you know, for for one thing, some something with opinions about how to present errors keyed to certain fields and how to get mm -hmm. the errors for a given field. And there are these things you can abstract out. They're really nice. It's nice to abstract out things about how to present an individual field with the correct HTML attributes and how to keep that in sync with the parsing logic like we talked about. Obviously, I, th I think that having a, a, an API to abstract these things is a really good idea. Um, so one of the things that I was looking at in surveying these different form APIs out there and comparing it to what I came up with is 
some of the APIs take this approach where essentially somehow or other you're you're teaching the form API how to get the raw value from the model and how to put it into the model. You could do that by putting a message on each individual event and then having a clause in your update function to set that value. Or some APIs will just say, hey, we're going to have the same message for all of these, but give me a function and I will, uh, a function that tells me how to set a value and how to read a value. We'll use those functions in my message. So at the end of the day, you're teaching it how to set the raw values and get the raw values. That's one approach. Another approach is to essentially have um, just low-level data. Yeah, so if you have, so a field has its raw value and it has the field state. And I really like the approach of having basically unstructured data that's just key value pairs as your source of truth, have your model manage that, then the form can completely take ownership over that. And um, so like, for example, the Itake Elm form, that package uses more of that low-level approach where essentially you give it the, the string key for how to get a field, and then it can handle writing to that field or or reading from that field. But so it keeps track of this low-level data, including the state if if a field has been blurred or changed, things like that. So it can manage all of that state for you. And, and the nice thing about that is you don't need to write getters and setters for every individual field and handle all of that boilerplate, and it can nicely handle um, all of those events for you. So I really like that approach. What I what I didn't like so much about the way that particular library does it is that it doesn't take it all the way. What I mean by that is a field has three different types of value, values it can have. It can be an empty field, it can be a Boolean field, or it can be a string field. And so when you're... In, in that API? Yeah. Okay. So when you're rendering a field, you need to do form.getField as string or form.getField as bool and then use that to render the value. But why not just encapsulate those details and and then just say get this field value? So and you you might be thinking, wait, if you're saying get field value, don't you need to pass it a string, which means that that's a string to keep keep in line. You need to say get field first and you need to say set field first or when you define that field, you need to say the name of that field, right? So it can get out of sync. And that's absolutely true. My solution to that is this applicative pattern. You can, um, you know, when you say like with field, you, you pipe your form with all these fields that you're basically declaring. When you say with field and then you say, you know, first and you give a, a field for a text input. The thing you get in the, in the function that you're applying, the applicative starter function, uh, that first field that you have has a name. And your functions for rendering a, a form field can use that. So, And you can even encapsulate it so that the only way to render using these input render helpers is with this field type. So you can't just pass in a string and get it wrong. And you don't have to reach in and say first you know, first field dot name, 
you have to pass a field type to the input render helper, and it knows how to take the name off of that value. So in, th in that way, you define your source of truth for a field is you do have to name each of your fields. Yeah, which I think is a good practice for accessibility anyway. That's true. And actually, it, it can help with things like a password manager can detect certain field names and help you fill in information, which is like something I'm often frustrated by when it doesn't kick in. Please, people, let my password manager fill information for me. It's better at it than I am. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this is just like a semantic form thing that you should probably do anyway. As you say, I, yeah. I totally agree. So the nice thing is, you only have to define that name in one place and everywhere else you're using this sort of field type that you pass in and now you've defined your source of truth in one place. So what do you mean with the field type? Like uh, that part is confusing me a bit. So the field is, you can think of it as an opaque type that you can pass to a, a field render function. So you say, hey, I have this first name field, please render it. And this, the form API also gives you a function to render that field. It knows the name of that field. It has access to your form state. And so it can just reach in and say, hey, I'm rendering the first name field. I need to go get that value from this raw unstructured data. So you don't need to write setters or getters to put it in the right low level place. You just can have a, you know, the form manage all of that state for you. It reaches in and grabs it. It knows the attributes to put on the on that input field because, you know, if you say field.password, that information is on that field data type that yeah. you're using to render it. So you, you can still customize those attributes, I'm guessing, right? To to make it look like however you want. Yeah, ex exactly. Yeah. That's or, right. You can or wrap it in a, in some other constructs or Exactly. Literally okay. all it is, is you get a helper function that takes a list of HTML attributes that it will add on in addition to the baseline attributes it includes, like the value attribute, the name attribute, the type attribute, if it's type password, type text, type telephone, and then it will give you HTML. And you render that HTML and you can put whatever you want around it. You're just defining a function that renders HTML. So I think that's pretty, pretty cool. And so like in this API I'm working on, I'm defining the equivalent helper functions for rendering an Elm CSS input element or an Elm HTML input element. At the end of the day, it's actually the same thing. And, you know, but it's convenient to be able to add styled attributes to it if you're using Elm CSS, but you could define a custom module to do that as well, right? It's at the end of the day, it's just some data that knows what all, all of this information about how to present a field and you could swap out a custom implementation. So yeah, I, so I think that, I don't know, I think that that applicative pattern solves this out of sync keys pretty well. Like you, you no longer have to worry about, because I always feel a little strange when I'm doing this like low level access where I'm getting essentially something from a dictionary that I don't know if it's going to return something and my keys could get out of sync. And, you know, that doesn't feel right as an, as an Elm developer. We, we want to make those things a little more robust. And I think this solves that pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like putting things into a dictionary because I would, I like to look at my model and see what fields are there, which can be quite 
hard to figure out with a dictionary. Well, mm. like a dict, I mean. Yeah, this approach, the source of truth for that is just, you know, you look at the the bottom of your form definition and it's just a series of of pipelines of with field first and then the definition of that field, with field last, with field except terms. So that's your source of truth. You look, So you still have one place to look and the form state is this opaque type. It gives you things like whether you tried to submit the form. And so that, that kind of brings me to another area I looked at, com kind of comparing the approaches I came up with with um, these other packages out there. So in looking at these other packages, there, there's, there's another problem to solve, which is how and when do you present error messages? And so, you know, a common approach would be like, wait until you click the submit button to present any errors. Mm -hmm. At least. Uh, I mean, the, you at least need to show the errors at that moment. That's right. That's right. Exactly. And um, otherwise you're going to confuse the hell of, of your users. Yeah. Otherwise you've sort of defeated the purpose of like painstakingly building up this validation logic to present errors to users. So, Tell me what is wrong, please. <laughs> You I better show them when they hit you. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you probably don't want to show them errors as they're typing in most cases. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, in some cases, you might want to. In some cases, you might want to wait until they've at least tried to submit or until they've at least blurred the field, like entered into focus on a new field. Uh, at Arima, our form library is pretty much only doing that, actually. It's tracking what has been touched and whether the submit button has been shown um, pressed sorry and based on that show the errors that you get through some configuration and a validation library that is uh, external to the form api that that is basically what we do at himio i actually don't remember if we do any sort of parsed and validate i guess we do but not sure so i guess we don't <laughs> but yeah so our form api is basically just about showing the errors uh, at the right moment. And that gives us a lot of flexibility for the rest. Right. Yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day, you the, the needs of uh, this API for Elm pages do differ slightly from if you're, for example, just going to be encoding it into JSON that you're hitting into, into an API, right? Because if you're, if you're going to just be encoding it, then why bother parsing into all these nice types it doesn't unless you want to give like a real-time preview of something or optimistic ui things like that mm, yeah which which can be handy right so it, it really does depend on the specific needs of your application but it, it, it is nice if you can give it a nice experience for parsing data when and how to show error messages like i saw different approaches to this problem and one of one of the approaches is to just have a hard-coded set of logic for, for when to display it. So if you've submitted, then show the errors. For Otherwise, for everything. And after you've submitted, then once the field gets blurred, show the new error, for example. You mean before the f uh, form has been submitted, show the errors... Oh, well, once you've it. tried to submit, then oh yeah, you know, the changing errors after the field blurs, for example. Yeah, I, I think what we do at Hemo, I think that's what we 
felt was nicer for UX and accessibility is don't show the errors when you're typing it, but as soon as you blur it, or as soon as you've been, uh, you submitted the field or the form, I guess, then update the error as you update right. the field. Yeah. So my thinking on that was, so yeah, I saw the, the two approaches I saw to that problem were number one, just have an opinion and hard code that into the API. And number two, have some sort of like validation strategy that you can configure somewhere. Yep. Which is what we did. So what, what I ended up doing to solve that problem is I just have form state that I expose in that view function that you define, where you get all of those fields that you can render however you want. And so in the form state, the, the form API I'm working on manages the state for whether you've attempted to submit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also each field, you get the state for um, whether that field uh, has been blurred or, or changed, for example. So between that kind of global form state and the individual field state, you can choose to present errors based on that state. That's the approach I've taken. So you can just write like a little error rendering helper that renders it however you want to render your errors. In fact, your, your errors can be any type. It doesn't have to be string. There's like a type variable for your error type and you can present your errors however you want and whenever you want based on the form and field state. That's the approach I went with. Seems like pretty flexible and... Yeah, and then people can have an opinion saying, oh, wait, okay, we want to show the errors as soon as it's been blurred or whatever. Exactly, yep. Yeah, yeah so it's totally customizable. It's kind of like what you talked about the, the last episode. Um, you're building on top of a layer and you can only do whatever that layer allows you to do. So you make yeah. it more general and people can do whatever they want on top of that, but they can only do whatever your platform is giving them. Exactly. Exactly. At, at, at the end of the day, what I've really been thinking about with designing this form API and, and considering other approaches is what, what opinions should I have about forms and what opinions should I let the user have about forms? And mm -hmm. so like, I uh, think uh, that it's, uh, I, I feel like the only ones that you can enforce are the ones that are proven to be better accessibility wise and the rest you, yeah. you kind of have to let them choose. Yeah. And there's also like the question of if I have an opinion on this, can I do something useful with it? Something useful being improve accessibility, make it safer in terms of wiring or preventing things from going wrong or mm -hmm. getting out of sync. More guarantees. Always nice. More guarantees. Uh, so like if you can't do something with an opinion, then why have it? Right. And <laughs> yeah. So, uh, at least as far as API design is concerned. So, for example, you know, if you have an opinion about errors, if you say fields can have errors, using that opinion, you can abstract away details about associating an error with a field because you have a concept of that in the API. There's a cost to having that opinion, but it seems pretty reasonable. If you have opinions about, now the thing is the browser has certain opinions, so why not take on those opinions in your API. So if, uh, you know, the browser has opinions about, you know, if you go to the MDN docs, it's clearly 
listed out that there's like a finite set of currently available field input types. So, all right, let's have opinions about that. We know what kind of data they parse into. So using those opinions, we can abstract away some of those details, give you more guarantees and safety. So yeah, so that, that's been like a guiding principle is make sure that you get something out of having an opinion and basically have opinions about things that the browser also has opinions about. Like the browser also has opinions about fields should have names. Fields should be inside of a form. So my API abstracts that away. Fields should have labels as well. And... Yeah, although actually I didn't, so far I haven't abstracted that away because I've essentially said you can present labels however you want. I guess I could have a simple helper function that says render render a label for this, but there are actually different ways you can render a label. You can wrap your input in a label. Yeah, yeah. Or you, and in that case, you don't have to say what that label is for, or you can do a label for an input element. So yeah, so that one is going to be hard to, uh, yeah, I, I guess you could have helpers that lean one way or another. Right. So you can have different opinions on that. And what does the user really gain from that opinion? So I don't know. I might change my approach on that one. But so far, my form API does not have an opinion on that. Yeah, no, I would at least start with not having one. At least if, unless you come up with something nice, but eh. Mm -hmm. otherwise leave it. Yeah, and I think as far as accessibility goes, like some of the things, I haven't actually built this yet, but I'm working on essentially, if you try to submit a form, there are some accessibility considerations for like setting focus on the first field with an error. That's going to affect like the experience for a screen reader and also just like bringing your attention to that field. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I didn't know about that. Yeah, so those are some things that, again, like having an abstraction Mm. can do some of that research for best practices for accessibility and have opinions where it seems like a reasonable idea to come down on a strong opinion there. But how do you know which field is first in your form? Well, the way you build them up in the applicative pipeline, you just say, hey, I'm going to assume that you're presenting it in the same order that you declared them in. Yeah, that's an assumption, right? Um, yes. Or can you enforce... I mean, if your view doesn't depend directly that uh, applicative, then it's going to be hard to enforce, yeah. right? Yeah, no, you're right. It it gets a little bit odd there. I um, But I think it's... Like, you also have to consider, like, in practice, how much of an issue is that going to be? How you know, how intuitive is it that you... <laughs> I, I can't believe that, I, that I'm hearing those words from your mouth, Dylan. No, I mean, we talk about we this We should lot, cover right? every like, error. We're, we're <laughs> library and framework authors. We should do everything perfect for the user. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you, if you take control over too much, then you can become rigid and, and take away the user's ability to do things in a custom way. And the, I really strongly believe that the way you render the view should be pretty unopinionated. Yeah, me too. Maybe an Elm review role if you're checking the... Yeah, I was thinking of Elm review, review, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, that also has some... Is, is gonna, yeah, maybe. Maybe. That would be Not a pretty that, easy one, right? 
I don't know. Well, I guess if you look at control flow, if they've abstracted it away to other... Yeah, that's what I'm thinking as well. Yeah. Yeah, we, we should try to enforce... To make sure that things work as much as possible to the extent of that is possible. And here it feels like it's a bit hard to do. Yeah. But I would say like it's a bit scary to make an assumption that th- something is right. Uh, unless you write it in documentation, like this has to be in the same order that you display things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you do have to make certain trade-offs like that. But I definitely, exper- like, like I mentioned, my initial prototype did have this approach where you build up the view and the parsing as you go along and a form and a field are the same thing and you you sort of combine different subforms together and you know in that scenario you you do know the order because you're just uh putting one after the other and that's what i feel like a lot of forms in react land did but but it also ties you up like with like a, how do you display things how when and then you have a new DSL which is tricky to make things work with everything like two exactly. wishes and it's not a nice way to you know if you if you say I want to have like a a sub like a, I want to have a display group and I want to have some like visual thing on the side here and so now you're like a, you're appending parts of the form that actually is just parsing to unit type and why is it parsing to unit type well because it's not actually it doesn't actually represent a field it's just a visual element and it's appending it but then you want to put you want to change your view and you want to put some other form elements next to it and it just feels like the wrong abstraction for building up a view in this sort of composable combinator way so it didn't it didn't work for me. I, I wasn't feeling it. So then there's there's another piece, which is how do you do dependent validations? So you have yeah. mm-hmm. password, password confirmation, you have a check-in and a checkout date, and the check-in must be before the checkout date. Or you only have to check this field if this checkbox is is checked, something like that. Right, right. So I came up with two pieces to help with this. So first for the sort of dependent validations. So I initially, you sort of alluded to how in this pattern I'm using for the view, if one of the individual fields doesn't parse, how mm-hmm. do you how do you present that when it fails? Because you need to show a view no matter what, whether everything is parsing correctly or not, whether there are validation errors or not. But you're showing, you, you're giving the raw values, right? You're giving the raw values. You actually can give like a value that might be parsed or might not be parsed, right? And ooh, no, or not right. Like I don't get it. Sorry. So <laughs> what do you mean? What I mean is I cannot call a function whether or not the form is valid with a parsed value because parsing might fail, and then mm-hmm. I can't call the function with a parsed value. But if I say, hey, I'm going to parse this date field. Here's a required date. The type it parses into is not a maybe date. It is a date. I'm Mm -hmm. going to give you... So I can't give you a date, but I can give you a possibly parsed date value. And you can check if it's parsed or not, and you can use it if you want to. So you're giving both the raw value and the parsed value? Well, usually you don't want to use the raw value. So... 
that was one of the things I was trying to avoid in, in my design is I didn't want the user to ever have to deal with the raw value. And that's one of the things in surveying these different parse, uh, form parsing APIs is that I did see some APIs where the solution to these sort of dependent validations is, hey, just you can define something that gets access to all of the previous like raw values. And then you have to sort of reapply your parsing logic and hope it doesn't get out of sync or hope that it's fine to like compare oh, the raw values. Yeah, okay. So, so you're talking about uh, getting the parse values in the end then or the in the decoding or validating. But yeah. It's in view. I mean... You could have it in the view if you wanted to. It Yeah, I guess. It's, you know, in case the user wants to do something with it, in case the user wants to... Pattern match rather than reparse something. Yeah, you want to, like, take a, I don't know, some some value you decoded into and render it next to the field. And you say, hey, I was able to, not only was I able to parse this value, but... Like you put the word tomorrow next to a field because you've set it as tomorrow or you've set it as today or you put the text you're checking in today because you selected today, you have access to that parsed date. It's a possibly parsed date, but you check if it's there and then you you can you have access to that, right? So you sort of may as well give access to that value in case you want to use it somewhere in the view. But you can also use it in a function for doing like dependent validations. And so now, so at first, my approach to this was I was um, only calling this function to do these dependent validations if everything parsed correctly. And then I can give you all of these parsed values and you can sort of do these dependent validations and combine it into a nice type given everything that parsed into nice types. And the problem with that is now, if you're going through the form and you want to get this nice error message next to your password confirmation that says, this doesn't match your password as you're typing. So you know whether or not you're good. Now, now you only get it if you filled the rest of the form. Exactly. So you have a something that is a required date field or just a required string or whatever it may be. Now, it's not parsable because it was unwrapping that maybe type when you did the required or whatever validations you did for individual fields. And if any of those have any problem, you don't get that error, which is not good, right? So you should be able to have fine grade control over when you display these dependent validation errors uh, rather than being locked into some arbitrary thing that's based on yeah. convenient parsing. Mm -hmm. So what I came up with is a validation API that that lets, lets you take these like validated types and combine them. So you can say like validation.map2 and then you can um, take the password and the password confirmation and you you know you can do validation dot and then you can add a validation error to an individual field which takes the password confirmation and associates an error with that field. Again, it's type safe because you're not just passing it a string password confirmation for the name of the field, but you're passing it a field. So the only way you can associate an error is by giving it an actual field that you know you're using on your form. So that's a lot of code. We're talking about a lot of uh, a lot of ideas here, but um, but I'm pretty happy with how that turned out. So now, so just to get it right, because I'm not sure I do. 
if you use like uh, map two, you're going to show the errors for every individual one of those two things, or map three, yes. or one of those three things, regardless of whether the other failed. Exactly. Okay. If if any individual fields validations fail, there will that error will always be shown, no matter what. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think that makes sense. But in addition, you can take all of those fields and you could you could say, hey, I need to check these two fields to present possible errors. And and I don't care what other fields are parsing or not. But if I if I'm able to, you know, parse this password and password confirmation, or if I'm able to parse this check-in date and checkout date. So meaning if you've entered a check-in date and you haven't entered a checkout date, it's not going to run that because if you do, you know, validation.map2 with your pass with your check-in and checkout, well, one of them doesn't parse into a date. So it's not going to run that dependent validation. But if you if you do a dependent validation on those two, um, and you now you have two dates, you can check that the check-in date is before the checkout date, and it will run those, assuming that those two fields parse, but it doesn't care about the rest of the form. So all right, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty nice. And then you can use all of that to build up the final parsed value. So if you want to, you know, parse don't validate into a nice type, mm -hmm. you, you say, hey, we don't need the password confirmation for the parsed value. We just need the password because that is the data type we want to parse into. Uh, but we're only going to parse into that if there's a matching password. You can do that. And in fact, you could even um, parse in, you could even recover and parse into a type by de defaulting values if any of the uh, individual fields failed to parse. And that's nice because you might want to like show a preview or optimistic UI or, uh, well, not optimistic UI if there's not an in-flight submission because it's not valid, you're not going to have an in-flight submission. But you could render a preview of something while something is, so you're updating some, you're creating a new product listing Mm -hmm. And you can show a real-time preview of that product listing, gotcha, even yeah. though you didn't enter a price and the price is required, you can default it to zero or and show that in the product listing. Okay, so you can have a default that's still uh, forbidden from being parsed for real. Exactly. Okay, so there's a, there's a few uh, layers <laughs> to this. There's, yeah. there's a parse value. There's mm -hmm. a parse value with the defaults, with fallbacks. Right. There's validation errors, and there's uh, things that are not have not been filled yet or can't be parsed. Yeah, and the, so, the parse values with fallbacks are actually all it is is it's just this kind of combining function tells you how to like parse given all of the individual fields. You can check if they have any errors and and you can combine them together. If that whole process succeeds where there were no errors on individual fields and you didn't add any dependent errors in, in addition to that in that function, then you successfully parse a value. But you can still parse into a value even if you added errors associated with fields. And so you can you can say, you know what? Yes, I want to present all of the errors with individual fields, which your, your view function already does. But I also want to show whether or not there are errors. I want to get 
a parsed value if I can, so I can show a preview. So you can still so you can still do that. Now in the uh, this Elm Pages API I'm working on for receiving the incoming request, where, so you submit the actual form data, it receives the form data. You reuse that same form parser function, and you just don't want to get that value at all if there are any errors or anything went wrong. So in that scenario where you didn't give a price for a new inventory, it's you know it's like I don't want to parse into data. I just want to immediately give an error and say uh, no, this isn't going to work. So now I feel like the question is, are you going to publish that as a separate package? Yeah, I have. I've gotten that question, and I have been thinking about that. I certainly, I'm pretty happy with some of these designs I um, came up with for this API, and I, th I want to shake things up. I would love to like influence the way we approach form handling in Elm, and uh, so I don't know. I'm I haven't decided yet what that's going to look like if it's just writing some posts about my findings and sharing the Elm Pages form API I build, or if it's going to look like me building a separate vanilla form parsing API uh, that's independent of Elm Pages, or if the two will somehow be connected that I'll have like my Elm Pages form parsing API use my vanilla one and build off of it or something. So those are different paths I'm considering. But I, I hope that maybe I can sway some opinions about some best practices for for handling forms in Elm. Yeah. Let us know if you if you want to have this as a package or Yeah. I might just play around with it to see to see how that feels and, and I mean if nothing else to showcase my ideas about forms in a way that you can easily share on an Ellie and play around with. So yeah. Yeah, so the the Elm Pages form API does have like like I mentioned certain coupling to Elm Pages features like data sources for doing server side validations, and mm -hmm. it also hooks into state. So the Elm Pages framework manages the state for you. So we talked about using low level form state, but the Elm Pages framework, this new version, will actually keep track of the client side form state for you. So you don't need to wire anything into your model and it can hook into that. And it can keep track of in-flight submissions and you can use, so you can run your same form parser on the in-flight submissions. What, what so is in-flight submission? If you press the submit button, it's valid. It's sending it to the server. Mm -hmm. That's an in-flight submission. It hasn't come back with a response yet, but you okay. are submitting a new product so, you know, if you're submitting a new item to your to-do list, you can show optimistically, you can show that new to-do list item. Or if you're deleting a to-do list item, you can optimistically gray out that to-do list item in the, in the list. So you can reuse that same parser for the in-flight requests, the client-side request, like the client-side state, and the server incoming server request parser. Um, so yes, it is going to be like coupled to those things, but we'll see. Maybe I'll maybe I'll build a version that's decoupled from that as well. I do feel like forms are one of those areas where it is nice to have an abstraction to have a consistent thing across your whole application, but it is something that if you want to get started, you can just wing it, build it yourself from scratch every time. So if you 
unless Dylan builds a really great uh, package for everyone to use with or without Elm Pages. I think that if you want to get started, you should probably be build your own thing. The only uh, thing I'm wondering about is accessibility. Like if you have a package that makes accessibility better, which is going to be hard to think about yourself, like all the best practices, then maybe it's worthwhile. But otherwise I feel like, yeah, just to get started, build your own version, N not of, of a general thing, but like you have this form, just do a manual model and update and view. Yeah, I mean, you could definitely start there. I mean, if you're if you're not doing anything too complex, but if the problem then becomes if there are many places where things can get out of sync. If yes. there are so mm -hmm. like how many how many places do you have to define logic that you could get wrong? How many points of failure are there for things like mm -hmm. Defining your validation logic. Could you forget to run a validation for a field? Could you forget to show the errors? Could you exactly show the Could errors for the wrong field? Show, exactly. Could you set a wrong field? Could you forget to wire in a setter? Absolutely. Um, yeah. Could. But but in practice, Dylan, like how often does this happen? Really? <laughs> and, it, and also, it's like yeah. how much cognitive load is it taking up? as you're working on these things, th making sure you didn't get any of these details wrong. So I personally have convinced myself that we can build a pretty nice abstraction using low-level form state and an applicative pipeline. And parse don't validate. Parse don't validate. <clears throat> I, I also didn't mention like, but the individual field API for, for building up a field that's composable, you start with field.txt and then you pipe that to field.required uh, you can pipe that to field.withvalidation that uses a phantom builder api which works very nicely for that use case because you know you yeah so i'm very happy with that i'll, I'll share links to these preview apis that people can take a look at if they're curious to see more details but uh, i feel like this is a combination of a lot of things that we've talked about opaque types builder really pattern is. applicative Phantom types, <sighs> yep. Using using the platform, exactly. It really, it really is. Yeah, yeah. So I I've convinced myself at least that I think there's a nice abstraction we can build here. I hope I have convinced some others, but uh, I'll have to put it out there and let people get their hands on it and see see what they think. It definitely sounds interesting to me, but uh, I'm not sure I could build it right now. Uh, with my understanding yeah. at least. So yeah, either you're going to have to write about it or publish it yeah. for me to to try it out. There were a lot of details that were really tricky to to figure out. Even, even if future me went in a time machine and told me, and I listened to this episode about these sort of design considerations and dead ends. Of course, it's hard to mm -hmm. just learn those lessons without trying it yourself but also but it was yourself was, in the from the future that, that's true <laughs> what are you but talking about <laughs> <laughs> time travel kind of like a time traveling debugger but i i uh i still had a lot of really tricky puzzles to solve one of the one of the things that i will say is definitely challenging with using this api is the types can be tricky you know as you know uh Working oh. with Phantom Builder 
pipelines. It gives you error messages for nice things, but it can be tough to figure out how do I make this API mm -hmm. happen. Yeah. It can feel a little cryptic. And also, you know, like if you're building, so there's some things that are similar to like the, you know, Minibill's Elm Codec API for building custom type codecs. Ah, uh, it's using that, that kind of API. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah, where you're, you have this sort of applicative thing where you declare each of the fields and then you use those in this function, right? And Right, yeah. It works quite nicely, but it the error messages can be very cryptic. And even for a very seasoned Elm developer, it can be hard to know what went wrong if you mess something up in terms of the error messages. But once it compiles... It works. It works. So there's definitely a trade-off there, but I feel pretty good about the set of trade-offs. <laughs> I mean, you're rarely going to to say, well, the API is great, but I'm going to just drop everything because the error messages are a bit hard to read. Like, Yeah, yeah it, totally. I mean, if we can improve the error messages, definitely. Uh, but do it, but... Yeah, that's not never going to be a well, not never, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah. If the API works well, then that's what is most important. It would be interesting to know whether we could have configurable errors, like yeah, tell the compiler like, hey, if we have an, an error message with this um, uh, phantom type, then show this kind of message to tell mm. people how to interesting, like give links to examples or something, or to if to an FAQ. Whoa, that would be cool. It sounds like an amazing idea, actually. Yeah, that's definitely a challenge. And it's it's one that I run into, like when, <clears throat> when I'm building codecs using Elm Codec, it's <clears throat> like when I build it and it's compiling, I'm pretty convinced that it's going to work and do what I expect. But when I'm building it up, if I get an error, like I basically have to be very careful to incrementally build it up and have it in a working state at each step. And right, yeah. Often I use like debug.todo because like if you forgot an argument in that mm -hmm. lambda that you you have for every field in your codec, the error messages would not help you understand that that's what what happened at all. Yeah. So build your build it one field at a time. Yeah. Yeah, build it one field at a time and I'll often just like put debug.todo somewhere so it's just like all right, <laughs> I want to focus on this part of the error now, get that right, then focus on the next part of the error. We haven't described how the Elm Codec API looks like, but I feel like this is not the time for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we do have an episode on codecs, and we'll we'll drop a link to the docs as well with a good example there. Yeah. Well, this may be our wonkiest episode yet. We uh, really got into a lot of nerdy API design details here. Uh, I feel like the fancy build pattern was also quite uh, wonky, so... True. <laughs> True. But at the end of the day, hopefully all these wonky details go to, to serve a better developer experience, so... Yep. I'm looking forward to a blog post or an, a package, Dylan. I yeah. have to admit. I'll work on that. Yeah. For the release of this episode, please. <laughs> I'll do my best. I've I've actually been thinking about doing a, a blog post kind of comparing some concrete examples 
of these different approaches as well. Because I think it's I think it's a good exercise in API design and also for posterity, like it's nice to know what kind of trade-offs there are for these different form API approaches. Yeah. Well, until next time. Until next time. <laughs>